psychological oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. While philosophizing is something we all do much of the time, this pervasive nature can make it hard to see the forest for the trees in many respects. Attempts to define terms and fields while qualifying and quantifying can seem very abstract and conceptually challenging to the average person. But for all the difficulty formal philosophy presents, there's one area that nearly everyone has a firm opinion about, ethics. If philosophy is a forest, then ethics is a trail leading through the trees. And many times, a person's trail will dictate which trees in the forest they end up seeing. That's a really nice start. <laughs> so we did uh, ocean currents last week. We did a forest this week. We'll metaphor see if I can if I can continue to come up with <laughs> the right metaphor for the uh, the remaining uh, pillars of of philosophy. Yeah. So um, I, as I mentioned to you right before we started recording, um, we've gone over these topics in just little snapshots in the very first episode we ever did, and uh, in that episode we started out. Um, going from from big to small in terms of scope. And uh, in this series, we're going in reverse. We're starting out um, looking at, at, you know, we'd have to put small in quotations here, um, but, you know, things of, of aesthetics and uh, values, and then moving up to um, sort of bigger, bigger sections as we go along. So what is that pillar constructed of? Is yeah. it cement? Is it stone? Yeah, like we talked yeah. about last week. Uh yeah. you know, these are um uh these are uh, structural there's structural integrity to them. So what is it that they're supporting? What is it that they're that they're doing in this this house of philosophy? So everyone is sort of familiar with the word ethics, but formally what is it? Um, well, I think the, the part that most people would be familiar with, maybe the first two parts, would, would be the idea of trying to discern what is goodness um, and, and what is its opposite. And, and then uh, a secondary part is looking at very, uh, Deciphering or creating uh, moral codes, the principles, the rules, so to speak, and then the third part is is actually applying those good bad conceptualizations. For instance, is ought should we kinds of things through the lens of the moral conduct rules that we debate and talk about, and apply them to a very specific situation. Gotcha. So, um, you're you're sort of um, alluding to kind of the subfields of ethics. Do you want to kind of go over some of them real quick? Yeah, some of them. I, you, you know, it was I, I I read all the time as to you, and I I was rereading a number of things this week, and I, I found myself a new encyclopedia of philosophy uh, used, which of course I purchased for my own library, <laughs> and. The subcategorizations are mind-boggling sometimes, so we, we we won't necessarily go into all of them. But and we'll get to the history in a bit. But we have really three or four main ones, and then they break off into shoots. So <laughs> a tree with three branching large trunks and then a whole lot of branches right okay. um, so in no particular order uh, we have virtue ethics uh, uh, duty ethics or deontological ethics uh, consequential ethics or consequentialism um, under which lots of things branch off like uh, like utilitarianism and so on and and then sometimes we we get into a fourth category, which really used to be thought of as part of the virtue ethics, but it's called care ethics, and and that has to do with, as you might expect, uh, starts with the medical field and then works onward. But every field has its own branch of ethics. Yeah, and that's where um, that's and this is kind of what I was alluding to in the intro about why. Um, 
we all philosophize almost all the time, but it's difficult to talk about it because some of these things get sort of abstract and there's a lot of language, there's a lot of terms, there's a lot of um, jargon kind of, but it's necessary in order to talk about these concepts. It, it is. And and the other thing that happens is because you said we all talk philosophy and really we do. When I'm, when I'm, I'm grimmest about humanity, I, I don't speak this way, but thankfully it doesn't happen all that often. But the essential part is is the listening. So yes, we. I think most people have this impetus to want to talk about philosophy. And that's what we've been about and happy anniversary again for three years. But, you know, we, I think most people are about that. But if you start to do what Socrates did and pose a question, if you're in an environment where immediately people don't even let you finish posing the question before they tear in and say, no, that can't, can't accept that. That's right. You know, there's not going to be a conversation. There's not going to be an exploration. There's going to, it's as if you're in a void and somebody's saying, well, I'm taking this side, even though there's nothing there. And I'm taking this side, even though nothing has been established yet, but, but that's my side and I'm going to plant my flag on it. And, and philosophy really doesn't work that way. Right, right. Exactly. Yeah. So with these subfields, um, you know, there's a lot of them that I think a lot of the, what you were describing sort of falls under the umbrella of like a descriptive ethics, yeah. which is more concrete. Um, you know, like you said, every field, you know, scientific fields and these things have their own ethical um, sort of codes, um, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's animal experimentation or, you know, um, possible outcomes of research or all these sorts of things. Yeah. Um, sort of at a, at a higher level, you have, other categories like applied ethics and, and normative ethics, and really at the highest level, um, which is kind of what we're doing here, is metaethics, right? So we're thinking about thinking about ethics. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah, where do, where do our principles come from? Metaethics asks those kind of big questions. So if if you say, well, are they invented? Are they social creations? Did we did we come up with them in order so that we don't just kill ourselves utterly, or do they come from outside? Are there are the universal truths that exist no matter who one is and whatever time one is? Is there a role for rationality, or is it just all about feeling? Feeling, and what is the meaning of the term? So, yeah, metaethics. I think people know the word meta now, or the prefix meta, a lot more than they used to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Probably it's, because of Deadpool, who I can't stand, as you know. But I, <laughs> you know, when you look out at the audience and you start talking, right. That's meta because you've got a story going on, but then somehow somebody's commenting about this story while they're in the story. Yes. And, yeah. and that's what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I think it's definitely in the pop culture um, more often than it was. So, yeah, I think the important thing to establish early in this conversation is um, like in the intro, when I'm talking about average people having a hard time grasping these concepts. I'm not talking down to anybody. We're, oh, we're average no, people, no. Right? A, right? A single person could spend a whole lifetime studying ethics and never get into all of the subfields and sure. never um, do any of these things. And when you and I um, talk about uh, these, these sorts of concepts and then we offer up opinions, we are not saying that, that our opinions are fact or that we have some special insight into them. We're just trying to use our rationality and experience to come up with um, how we, what we think about these sorts of things and bounce ideas off each other and really provide you guys, the listeners, with feel for your own rationality and your own thoughts about these things. Mm -hmm. so, um, so we've talked about, you know, ethics. We talked about some of the subfields. Um, so... Acute listeners who tuned in the last time might be wondering, well, isn't ethics sort of talking about values? What, what separates <laughs> ethics from axiology that we talked about last week? It's an excellent question. I've been pondering that as I've been reading this week because it, it's, uh, uh, it's not oil and water. <clears throat> it's, as I play with my granddaughter sometimes in the sink, it's food coloring and water. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what happens when you put red in, in a bowl yeah. in, in water? Well, it's very pretty. <laughs> uh, and then the sun hits it and it changes a little bit. Then somebody puts green in <laughs> 
and it just changes, but it doesn't change all at once. It swirls outward, and, and that's really what we're talking about here. So values, as we talked about with axiology, um, there are really two two things there that sort of happen in ethics, two values, uh, value neutral. What does a value mean? That's the meta, meta kind of part of it. And then what are the values themselves? How do we go about valuing? And a, a moral code implies a value system, but it isn't a value system. If you go to a, a strictly theological moral code, thou shalt not, dot, dot, dot. Okay, but the value would be why? <laughs> Where does this come from? Right. So, yeah. So, ethics is, is talking about values. So, in that regard, um, there's many philo philosophers and philosophical schools that consider ethics part of axiology. Mm -hmm. um, same way aesthetics is part of axiology and these sorts of things. Um, and some consider it its own distinct thing. So for our purposes, um, like you said, it's there's going to be a, a fluid boundary. There's some osmosis happening between this barrier yes. um, in and out. So yes. um, not totally separate, um, but the field of ethics itself um, is talking more about um, establishing right and wrong and good and bad as opposed to just sort of um, – uh, I guess, more generalized values, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we've been using it sort of interchangeably up to this point, and I think it's the Cambridge Dictionary. Um, some dictionary actually says that the two terms are interchangeable. Yeah, Cambridge says that. Uh, Oxford, uh, the really best dictionaries apply. But uh, I just valued something as the best because right. they're the most academic. But, that's <laughs> but I'm going to ask the question anyways. What separates um, ethics from morality? Are the, are they interchangeable terms, or is there a difference in the way? There's a difference in in a hierarchical sense, uh, if you speak strictly. Morals are very specific, or quite specific, principles that are formulated out of the broader, well, I'm mixing my metaphors, out of the broader umbrella that is ethics. And we talk about, well, we're going to talk about good and bad. We're going to talk about uh, how we arrive at the definitions of good and bad. Well, that's pretty big and broad. Mm -hmm. We were talking about that sort of before the, before the broadcast today, too. But when you get onto morals, morals are very pinnable Bullet items, generally. Codifications of the abstract. Okay. So, what would separate, in that case, what would separate um, morals from, um, like, applied ethics? Or is that part of it, do you think? Well, applied ethics is when you're examining particularly controversial issues. So, we take the issue of that we've talked about things like artificial intelligence or or uh, end of life issues whatever you want to choose but when you're talking applied you're saying well uh, as a bioethicist in a hospital a large hospital might well here's where we're going to go here's where here's what we need to do here's what we ought to do and then we actually get down to putting that in words right we 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 work it down from Oh, I have a sense that we really need to do something about this. Uh, down to, well, what are the th reasons that we feel like we need to do something about this? Down to, here's what we're going to do this week. Okay. And and that's really the structure. Would you say that um, ethics deals more with um, groups of individuals, whereas morality is an individual sort of... I'd like to say that, but I really can't because... Sometimes it works, oddly, it works backwards. Mm -hmm. So that the very first thing people may become aware of, whether it's uh, whatever religious tradition it is, is, well, here are the, here are the, the these are the don'ts. 
and more or less after the creation story, that's how the the Bible works too. You know? Don't do this. Okay, so it, if you start with the don'ts, then you're working upwards to the whys. Hmm. Uh, why, why this, why that? And I think that most of us like to work from the broad down to the... So I, I do think that some people have mixed them up, and I don't want to over-talk it because whether you're talking about ethics or or moral codes, you're still in the same ocean. Right. <laughs> or the same forest. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't want to get too nitpicky about it, but really academically there is a, a difference. Gotcha. All right. Yeah, no, I think that I think a lot of that makes sense. So yeah, we've we've kind of, you know, talked about the essence of ethics here. We've examined um some of the broad um subfields and, and hopefully um a lot of those terms have, have become a little bit more clear to listeners as we get into um, other sections of the of the episode. So you just mentioned it, and now I'm I'm kind of curious. Do you believe that ethics and religion developed corroboratively? Uh, well, here's where I get in trouble. No, <laughs> <laughs> I I think that ethics as humans evolved and no i can't point to what year what <laughs> way big okay but uh, to me I, you you have humanity before you have religion in my view we create religion that's not to say that there isn't a uh, a god or gods there isn't something supra beyond us but you come to realize that if you go that way uh, and you start saying, well, no, I, I sh- just like, <laughs> no, I shouldn't go visit a giant beast without something in my hand to defend myself. Well, all right. Then if you say, but should I kill that beast? Then you're getting into ethics. And that still is not necessarily tied to a, a religious structure. Yeah. Yeah, this is a fascinating question, and we've done so many episodes that I don't actually remember if we've done an episode on religion. But um, that would be a fascinating question. Well, I think we can we can revisit. Yeah, yeah. There's absolutely no way we covered everything there was to talk about religion if we did one. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. And we're a different place now in both of our lives than we were if if when we had the discussion. Right. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we've done one, but it's it's a fascinating. question that has huge implications on um, not just your philosophy in general, but also on the ethical question, um, talking about um, the origin of religions, right? Because there's several different ways you can approach it. You can approach it from um, sort of an atheistic viewpoint where you say, okay, there is no... There's no God. There's no supernatural plane. Basically, um, Mm -hmm. it's materialistic, right? What you see and what science can describe is, is what you get. And so as a result... Humans create religion um, from a human urge that originates inside the brain, and that's all there is to it. You could also sort of have the viewpoint um, on the opposite end of the spectrum um, that most organized religions um, tend to espouse, which is that there is a God, um, there is this sort of realm, and they reveal or dictate religion to humanity. Mm But somewhere in the middle, kind of like what you were just alluding to now, you could have the view of religion that there may be a God or a a religious or spiritual plane out there that we discover through our lives, right? All three of those transcendental, yes. And and think about the ethical implications of all three of those Mm -hmm. scenarios, right? Mm -hmm. How you approach your value of right and wrong and good and bad can be drastically different depending on which one of those scenarios you believe actually exists. Right? This is, you've just expressed so well the the trio, in a sense, of, of the philosophers that everyone can name. Uh, Socrates, really, a, a, a lot of people tag him as the first ethicist. And what he primarily seems to have done 
and again, that's through the, the eyes of his student Plato, is, is, is to ask questions which are an attempt to define terms. What is courage? What is piety? What is justice? And so on. And then to, to have a back and forth, back and forth, trying to figure what that is. And then when doesn't it apply? And how do you have to redefine? And then Plato uh, goes to the, uh, in, in, a, in essence, theological, uh, the idealistic. Here's the the changing realm and then the realm of the unchanging. <laughs> and then his student, Aristotle, says, nope. Essentially, I'm obviously over oversimplifying, but essentially says, nope, ethics are, is natural, ethical naturalism. It's not a term he invented. That was way down the line. But uh, just to say that, no, it's within us. Yeah, and and we wrestle with it. So th those three views are essentially there. Yeah, yeah, and it it's funny to um, you know, again, you're everybody's making this decision um individually, and it's impossible to say that there's a right or wrong scenario, right? Because from a philosophical viewpoint, right, I cannot, I can't disprove the notion of God, but I also can't prove the notion of God in a scientific. Oh, there's no empirical, and we have right. said that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So as a result, if you can't prove or disprove something, then it leaves these everything in the the messy middle that you have to contend with when you're talking about these sorts of things. If you're being active about your your intellectuality, or if you're or if you're being active about your faith, or you're being active about two because you have both, it, it, that's yeah, it's the messy. What color should we put into the water? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, as a result, um, when I find myself thinking about big issues and, and probably the ones we'll talk about next, uh, epistemological and metaphysical issues, right? I find myself sort of vacillating between these viewpoints, right? Like I can, I can imagine, I can imagine a world where there is nothing out there, right? Because science sort of describes it, right? Maybe there was just a big bang and we're here and this complicated mess of neurons in my head invents these spiritual ideals. But then I can also see, um, you know, I've, I've, I think I've mentioned a couple times now, I recently went through a period where I was, I was obsessed with uh, esotericism and mysticism <laughs> just because like that idea is, is appealing. I think it's, it's like naturally appealing to people that there's a hidden knowledge in the universe and we're if we suss it out then we have an insight into this this sort of secret nature of spirituality <laughs> and on the other side you know we live in a culture that's immersed with the idea um that that god does exist and that he's done supernatural things and that these things have happened and just on a day-to-day -day basis with me just thinking about things out there i just jump back and forth between these different viewpoints thinking about how things, how mm -hmm. the universe works, right? How these, you know, <laughs> right? How we know what we know, and as most, what's most relevant to this conversation, what does it mean for something to be good or bad, or good and evil, or whatever the case may be? So, really interesting, just how complicated and and uh, you oh, know, and, and that makes some people really uncomfortable. We we talk about almost every episode, right? Some people have very little tolerance for that kind of ambiguity. That's what I love. I love just, man, the fact that there is no answer you can pin down opens up all these possibilities that are just fascinating to imagine and, and think mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. So how has the study of ethics sort of changed across history and culture? You talked about those big three that, right. that kind of went in a sequential order um, in, in Greek um, philosophy. What sort of other things have happened over over history or in different parts of the world regarding ethics? All right. Well, if I stay with the Western for a bit, uh, and side note, you and I are going to talk uh, about a, a book I've been made aware of that's been around for quite some time that is the apparently the quintessential uh, first primer on, on um, African continent philosophy, and I think we ought to read it and have that discussion. So that's a side yeah, note. Yeah, but but I wanted to say that too, I remembered it. But okay, so we go from the, the big three. Um, and, and this is not like year by year by year, we'd be here for a little bit because there isn't a year by year necessarily, but uh, let's let's go to the Romans. 
let's, let's, so in those times and terms, let's we have uh, many many branches, but a couple that most people are aware of is Stoicism, Stoicism, and Epicureanism, and. Uh, both of which are about the idea of self-discipline, Epicureanism, uh, aiming to uh, have people reach a state of uh, ataraxia, which is essentially balance in one's emotions. And Stoicism, uh, taking the position that you distance yourself from that which you need, and and uh, you take life as it comes. You change essentially the uh, the aphorism we see on bumper stickers sometimes: uh, change what you can, put up with what you can. <laughs> you know, uh, and and that is 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 a, a large focus. Then we then we move. Uh, we jump again. We'll jump to Saint Augustine. Uh, Augustine uh, working in. Or early middle, you know, not middle ages, but right around the Arthurian uh, time period. So uh, most influence when obviously he was alive in some sense, but between 300 and 400 AD and then, but then spilling way onward into the middle ages. Uh, and, and, and Augustine is really talking a lot about free will. Now, other philosophers before that talked about free will, but there's the focus, especially because it's a theological focus, because he's trying to come to terms with uh, God giving us free will. Hmm. And that's something we still talk about. So all these things we still talk about, these these guys focused on them, surfaced them for us. Oh, let's see. I'm not going to go everything on my cards. But that, well, let's jump ahead into like the 1500s and Thomas Hobbes, who's the first one to really articulate the idea of, of contractualism. The social contract of the world is brutal, and unless you you set rules down in which there's a you you are working under a governmental uh, a, a governance of some kind, then everybody's just going to destroy each other. Hmm. I'm so badly simplifying. This. <laughs> <laughs> is this working? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, no. Um, uh, and, and then we go to Kant, uh, uh, somewhat later, who's trying to figure out what the are there universal principles? We've talked about this before, but within the bookends of of what he, what he thought of as laws of freedom, which are what might be naturalism, uh, in, before it again was defined, uh, that come from within us, and then uh, are there external principles that just are so that we and and can be universalized. And then we move, uh, uh, you know, and there's so many other ones, Leibniz and Spinoza, and I, I just can't name them all because it would just clutter this all up. We, yeah, so. Yeah. and But it's interesting because you can see how these philosophical paradigms will have influences on ethical thinking. Mm -hmm. um, like you said, with the Romans, right? It's a, it's a lot about self-discipline. Well, where does that put the ethical emphasis? It's sort of on emotions, right? Yeah. They're sort of saying, all right, well, if you're looking at what's right and what's wrong, um, really, it's how you experience emotions is what's determining your kind of right and wrong. Yeah. If yeah. you look at Augustine, like you said, he was battling with free will. And the free will, determinism versus indeterminism conversation has huge ethical implications because there's determinists that say um, if you if you're looking at things from a determinist paradigm, somebody who murders somebody else cannot actually be considered guilty or be punished because they had no control over what they did. That's a huge ethical statement to it, make. It, it certainly is. Um, and and again, just sort of flowing throughout um, these sort of uh, different paradigms, different schools um, throughout history. Where ethics fits into the specific thinking um, has huge implications for the entire thought or school as a whole. And what the zeitgeist of a particular time period or the new ideas emerging from that time period do with the old stuff and reshape it again. It's that, that morphing again. Yeah, so – that was good. Um, you know, and, and again, we're not, obviously we're not trying to cover the, the entire history of ethics, <laughs> but just giving you a little, um, little thumbnail images, right? You know, something that you can click on right, and pursue on your own. And I'm sure that uh, in future episodes, we'll probably go into depth on, on several of these things. Mm -hmm. Um, 
if we if we didn't already. Um, so that's sort of the formative, right? We talked about the essence of ethics and, and kind of broadly described it. We've gone over some of the history of ethics there now. Um, so let's get into the speculative portion, which is really what the conversation is about. How do we define how do we define good and bad? You know, <laughs> we're still working on that, aren't we? Yeah, and it depends on the paradigm that you're in as well. It, 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 well, okay, so and and are you? Uh, there's ethical objectivism that says. The thing is so no matter who says it, essentially. And there's ethical naturalism that says, uh, and so ethical objectivism merges kind of with ethical logicism or logical approach with saying that ethics is about rationality. And various uh, stages along that spectrum, uh, you can go from the muddy right out to it's all about logic Spock, it's not about anything else, uh, to ethical naturalism, which asserts some, it's, you know, it's diverse, but but some uh, of those practicing within it uh, say, well, emotions are a subset of, 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 lo- of ethics itself and of logic. You, you can't separate logic and emotions. That you, you, you can't have ethics without emotions, essentially. And so, so how we define good, the first thing we, 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 we would Socratically start with, well, what is good? Do we define it against its opposite? Is it good? Is it a good to have the capacity to destroy someone? And and then, of course, you say that, no, wait a minute, what do you mean by destroy? Okay, is it good to have a culture that says we can kill sometimes? And automatically, just asking, the, no, wait a minute, no, killing is never right. Well, I didn't say right. I said good. <laughs> is Is something right different from something that's a good? And sometimes it is. Yeah, and is something that's right different from something that's just? And is yes. <laughs> and it's so you, know, so you get into these uh, sort of categorizations, and yeah, like you said, um, it really prevents you from asking the the high level questions, right? So if you if you're taking that Socratic approach, right, and you said, well, is it good to kill? That's really not enough, right? You, no. you say, well... You have to back up. Yeah. You have to add the sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, is it, well, what do is we it, mean by uh, kill? Does it depend on the situation in which one is doing that? Is it sanctioned? Well, why would a culture sanction? I mean, we're, we're hurrying through this, but that's, that's the, the give and take. Well, what do, you, what do you mean by kill? What do you mean by... Good. What do you mean by destroy? What do you what do you mean by justice? And back to Socrates again. Yeah, and it's really um, it's introducing a subjective element to it right off the bat, right? Because if if you can't answer the question yes or no to is it good to kill, then you're automatically saying, well, there's going to be qualifying factors based off of. Um, what we're what we're rationalizing, which is what you're saying before, can we accomplish that? Can we answer the question, is it good to kill, purely through logical, rational means, or is there always going to be an element of emotion that plays into how we answer that question? I think so. Now, now we'll step it back. Let's go to something not less hot spotty, but but perhaps uh, less grim. Although some people would disagree with that. Is it a good for a society to be able to mandate the the necessity of of taking a medicine in order for the culture, the society as a whole to stay healthier? In fact, as for the planet as a whole, is it good 
for a mandate to happen. And the reason I bring that up, because it's controversial, and that's what, you know, the third part of ethics is, is about, is taking issues that are controversial and trying to talk about them. But then you can break out all, and I'm not, we, we don't, I'm not wandering away from it, but I'm saying in order to have that conversation, then you need to break out what you think is, is uh, the relationship, again, politics between government and people. And is it right to do something, to mandate something when people are not doing it themselves? And is it right to privilege the health of the planet over the choice of the individual? And is it good that a person who will carry a sign that says, my body, my choice, is also anti-abortion? and castigates people who came carry the same sign <laughs> you see and but that requires backing away from it having somebody else you're talking with who isn't going to jump all over you spitting yelling stomping the emotions totally out of control because they got to assert that they're right each one of us so desperately wants to assert that we know and if we're really honest with ourselves most of the time, we don't. Most of the time, we're uncertain. And people who are uncertain and feel their uncertainty, sometimes that scares them enough that they want to pretend that they know. Hmm. Yeah. And so that that's a really good example, right, is this idea of um, personal choice versus a public good. And this is I mean, this is a, a philosophical problem for the books, right? This is <laughs> this is a thought experiment that would would go across everything, and it's sort of, um, you know, this it's where yeah, where do you where do you end up drawing that line between what you're saying and at what point if your reasoning becomes circular or hypocritical, um, do you have the ability to identify that, mm-hmm. or are there qualifiers that say, well? My body, my choice is right in this particular instance, but not in this particular instance for these reasons. Right? Mm-hmm. You have, but there has to be some rationality. There has to be some logic to it, to what you're saying. Otherwise, it's it, it's just hit and miss. It's just right. random, and that's a lot of what we have going on now. Is is people generally asserting their absolute right to absolute freedom without defining freedom? Hmm. Freedom doesn't mean you get to do anything you want any old time you want to do it. It has never meant that. <laughs> and one could, and, and I would, it would be grand to be able to have an hour's conversation just defining the term freedom. Yeah. So. Yeah, maybe we will. That would, I think that would be a good one. So let's ask, I'm going to ask a question. Can ethics be divorced from a human basis, do you think? In other words, do are there universal rules that even if human beings had never evolved are built into the structure of the universe itself right. that, that some other life form would live by? Yeah. So, yeah, that's probably the easiest way to thinking about it, right, is let's say there are no humans, but maybe there is an intelligent alien civilization that evolved somewhere else. Do you think that they would have a similar, um, a similar ethical? But beyond what that that thought experiment doesn't even necessarily work. But as, because the evolution of organisms and communities yes. would automatically steer you towards having Good. certain ethical ideals. I was mean. I sent us off in the wrong. Uh, you know, I just I couldn't help it. <laughs> okay, so let's bring it back. Are there universal principles that no matter what human being you are? in uh, any part of the planet at any time period of our development is always true Hmm. or always applicable. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's so many people have thought about this and expressed all kinds of articulate arguments worked out from it that I feel overwhelmed just thinking about it. But we must think about it because that's what's so between just us here. 
if you, you ask that, and my first thought is perhaps uh, being kind to each other. But even that doesn't really work for me because kindness is not necessarily embedded. It's a, yeah. that's a, that's a cross between the objective, the objective and the naturalist. And that makes me think of something that might make it a little bit easier to chew, right? Is um, maybe we'll start with, do you think ethics can be divorced from a cultural viewpoint? So in other words, can an individual, you know, if, if you had a um, an experiment where you had an individual that never had contact with another human, mm-hmm. would they have a concept of ethics? Do you think, that's or do you think that you have to have an yeah. individual or a communal interaction? I think there's uh, a wavery concept of behavioral survival that might inform certain kinds of more specific principles one has developed in order to live on one's own that might seem to coincide with something a society. But, you know, I have to say this, and if if she ever listens to this when she's an adult, my granddaughter might not forgive me, but I'm just, I'm, I'm spending a lot of time with the young one now, you know, and and I and the, I I think a lot about this because what's going on with that little self? That's a tremendous, powerful little self, and and the first principle of behavior is not always recognizing rules because why should one? <laughs> because somebody's trying to superimpose them over the way you think the universe ought to work as a little one. Uh, and yet there are feelings of sadness at having done something that seems a minor infraction in the scheme of the universe, but can, can put you right down for a moment into a weep. So I think it's always in, in flux. I think the possibilities are there. I think that the way one encounters a rule system really begins to help one define one. So this is kind of a contrastive thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, looking at children is, is a fascinating sort of case study because I think that a children, you know, a child to parent or guardian metaphor is very similar to an adult to organized religion sort of metaphor. Or right? government. Like you said, yeah, yeah there's yeah. like you said at the very beginning of the episode, you need there's a governance, right? This ethics is sort of this governance. So the rules that are being made are really just extensions of of the ethical standpoint of the governing organization in almost all cases, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's fascinating. And even though children do have obvious social interaction, like you mentioned, before they understand um, rules, and rules by extension come from ethical paradigms, how they react can give you sort of a glimpse into that question, right, um, of whether or not you need a, a, a communal interaction or, or an individual interaction to have ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, because before they have any regard for rules, you will see children act in certain ways um, that would lead you to believe they have an internal system of of good and bad, which which is constantly growing, and that's no different than us. <laughs> you between the ages of twenty and sixty three, I can tell you, I have a much different and much more complicated view than I did at the start of memory (laughs) I think that's so I don't think it's a hard and fast thing I I, no I don't think there are floating mathematics Hmm. perhaps ones and zeros are built into the universe itself I've I've seen compelling writing about that I don't think that moral codes are right and I probably agree with you I 
is, is in terms of being in the fabric of the universe, I think that that would be a very difficult argument to make that there are, are ethical principles that are hardwired into the, into the universe. But into humans themselves, that one's a much more fascinating question, mm-hmm. both based off of what we just talked about, but also the thought experiment, which again, you cannot conduct for ethical reasons. <laughs> but if you had an individual that lived in a room from birth, completely by themselves, and they were fed and taken care of through automated processes that, you know, they never had interaction with another person. And then at whatever point in their life, whether it was as a a five or 15 or 50 year old, you introduced a person and how would they react? Right. And, Mm -hmm. and what would that say about the, um, the innate ethical nature of humans? I would like to believe, based off of what you see with little ones and what we know about the human animal, that there's a tendency towards um, a communal good, mm-hmm. right? That they mm-hmm. would see another person and that the initial reaction would be an attraction and um, a, 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 fascination. A, a desire, yeah, and a desire to... Um, develop some sort of connection yeah i mean if you if 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 you get hurt a little one does not always immediately say are you okay however if they've noticed something that they have felt in being hurt themselves this is very micromanaged micro here but uh yesterday i i i found a a pin in a in a carpet and uh, I said, ouch, and that really hurts. And, and we stopped, we were playing, and, and my almost three-year-old granddaughter came over and looked and took my finger and gave it a kiss and said, oh, so sorry, Good. boo-boo, Grandpa, uh, I get you a Band-Aid. Hmm. Now, that wouldn't have happened <laughs> as, a, as a crawling being, you know, and, and sometimes you can bump your head and say, ouch, and it doesn't get noticed at all, right? So it's hit and miss, but you can see empathy of a kind that, that develops in, uh, across all, all ages. Your empathy can be developed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think with our thought experiment there, the variable is the ability of a human as a learning machine, right? There's lots of things that aren't described there. Like, does this mm-hmm. human have, um, is there, uh, let's say, some sort of automated voice? Or mm-hmm. do they have the experience of, of hurting themselves? Or, you know, how much how much stimuli do they have in which to draw information about the world in general? Absolutely. And is it all about, is it all just about me? Right. And and the reaction of, of the human that you introduce would be important as well, because the way that that human, you know, you're not obviously even even our, our test subject here would not be a completely blank slate, but in terms of human interaction, it would be. So that first human that it it interacts with, that's going to be its template for all of humanity until it interacts with another person. There's a, there's so if that person comes in and acts kind versus mm-hmm. violent, that's going to have a huge impact on the reactions of the person. If you were to just walk in and not react at all, what what would they do? What would they think if they had no no uh, or very small amounts of stimuli up to that point? Wait, what know? if they just said, hmm? <laughs> <laughs> Which seems a very ordinary human thing to do, too, when something very surprising happens. Yeah. Hmm, what was that? <laughs> yeah. It, it's a fascinating idea. And, and that's these sort of philosophical just um, thought experiments are, are what it really keep me keep me uh, interested. And what we're talking about here, too, is there's a branch of uh, ethics, which you've been alluding to, which which posits, and it's been shot down many times, but it still lives, but posits the ideal person. Are these rules, are the rules we can discern from the ideal person? And right from the start, <laughs> you, you can see the problems in that because, well, what makes an ideal person? Would we all agree what an ideal person is? Nope. <laughs> and that's that's where culture um, also plays into it, right? That's why I'd, I'd be interested, like you, you were talking about with the book that 
that you'd yeah. like us to yeah. read. Um, you know, the environment that people um, survive in, the types of communities they have, the type of interactions they have with other communities, all of these things add into the sort of cultural ethics that the people experience. Every bit as sophisticated as our own. Back in, in the old days, when white culture thought it was it, hmm. some parts still do, but it, it ain't. <laughs> that, that, uh, a culture, cultures are sophisticated by the nature of just being cultures. And a culture can develop in very, very different rules. Kant said there's going to be some few categorical imperatives. Maybe we got to find them. And I think that a lot of people trash Kant. We've talked about that. But if you believe that there are universals, then you got to go out and try to find where they are. Yeah. Yeah. And if you say that your culture your culture's conception of ethics is correct and another culture's not, mm-hmm. you're going to have to establish why that is. You're yeah, going to have to have rational... because you're valuing it because I value it, so what? Right. <laughs> you're going to have to have reasons for why that is. So, after talking about all of that, what do you think are the big ethical questions that are going to face us now and, and in the future? Oh, man. I want to hear your answers to this, too. <laughs> you know, I think the... One we talk about a lot, and I think it's because it's it's abstract yet um, present, and that's something – I think that combination makes something easy to talk about, right, is is AI, right? We, yeah, we yeah, talk yeah. about it a lot. It's something that, that does exist, and we're on the cusp of it, but it hasn't become practical enough for us to – concretely define any aspects of it. When, when the singularity happens, then it's already happened. Right, <laughs> then right. AI is a permanent part of us, perhaps. Well, all right. The, the ethical issues of what we do or don't do in an attempt to salvage humanity from of various kinds of apocalypses. <laughs> now, that just sounds terrible, I know, but Climate crisis is here. We are going to deal with it or bury our heads in the sand, and it doesn't matter. The water will still rise and destroy so much. And so what we do or don't do is an ethical – can we deduce an ought from an is? This is this, – this goes back to the ethical logicism. And uh, objectivism, or do we just uh, stick with our feelings? And our feelings are no, we'll be fine because we're humans. Well, it's probably not going to work. So, well, for a lot of humanity, and and so I think that's the big one. Yeah. But within that, there are lots of small things. Do we keep? Do we keep using the same kinds of energy because? It's economical because we just can't afford anything else. Do we keep making an economy as it is the, the, the God of, uh, of our being and, and therefore not make any changes? Do we, do we ethically accept change and seek it out of necessity or do we deny change and try to keep things as they are? I think these, for me, these are the, the biggest ones. Yeah, no, and I'd, I'd absolutely agree with you. And it's funny how questions that big filter down to your personal life so easily, right? Mm-hmm. The one I'm dealing with right now is for Christmas, we got um, a brand new set of pots and pans. So now I have, you know, all of these old pots and pans. And what I'm finding is you can't recycle them. <laughs> nobody, nobody will take them. Mm-hmm. And I'm fa- to me, it's an ethical dilemma to throw 10 pounds of metal into a landfill. It does not seem right in our current situation for me to just throw out this metal. Um, but then you have the ethical considerations of, well, if I donate it, am I placing another person in danger by having them eat off of these scratched up nonstick yeah. coatings, right? Yeah, yeah. There's several parts of this tiny seemingly insignificant problem that are actually um, big parts of 
a personal ethical and moral compass. Exactly. You've you've just you've just done it. It's and it's a thing that people can do every day, and many people engage or don't engage depending on what's happening in the day. You're not supposed to put batteries in a landfill. How many people take their batteries out of their dead batteries out of their flashlights and chuck them in the garbage can? Well, it's a lot simpler than putting in a container and hoping that you can get it to a recycling center. Well, there's an ethical problem in the culture if it doesn't make doing the right thing um, efficient. Yeah. And we, I deal with that at work as well. Um, we have a, a product that comes in that has um, this styrofoam packaging. And um, we reached out to the company that sent it to us and said, hey, um, if you pay to have these shipped, we'll send them back to you and you can reuse them. And they said, it's cheaper for us to make new styrofoam than for us to pay to have you ship it back. And therefore, the governing principle is it's cheaper. Right. So economic need or prioritization denies a deeper ethical impetus. And so at that point, as, as a company, we could have said, okay, well, we, we made an attempt, so we're, we're moving on. Instead, we reached out to several different places and eventually found one that said, well, what type of styrofoam is it? We said, oh, it's polyethyl. They said, hey, you know what? We happen to be able to recycle that exact type. So if you fill up a shipping container full of this stuff, we'll come pick it up once a month and recycle it, right? Cool. So this, again, it's this idea of, um, right, you're thinking of it culturally. Is it is it ethical? Is it moral to make it easier to do the wrong thing than to do something that has a utilitarian um good right mm -hmm. it's good for everybody if we learn to to recycle and it doesn't matter it doesn't really matter what you think about climate change right basically rationally right if you if i can say to you is there one earth yes is that earth of a single non-changing material property yes so our resource is finite Mm, yes, necessarily. <laughs> so if we yes. continue to use more resources or manipulate them into things that we cannot reuse, do you think that that's going to end in disaster? Mm, yes. <laughs> Thank it's, you, Socrates. See, it, there you, there, yes. it doesn't take a long line of questioning to get there. It, it only takes a few questions to get to the point to say, we need to start learning how to reuse mm -hmm. some of this stuff or start to recycle it. If we had to have... And this, too, I think is an ethics issue that people encounter all the time. If we were not able to send our trash to some invisible landfill somewhere in La La Land, there is no such place. It's going to be near somebody's living, and it's going into the ground, and things happen when things go into the ground. If we did not have that, how would we change our behaviors and what would that do to the economy it would have to be a different kind of economy wouldn't it that's scary you bet <laughs> but it might be best for humanity right if you if you bring decisions home like that it's funny how people's decision making would change right if you were responsible for disposing of all your own garbage or if you were responsible for getting all of your own food how many veg how many vegans do you think there would be if, if, I, if you were responsible for your own food mm. how many people <laughs> have the stomach to kill and, and process an animal. There are people out there. I know we're sure, in an area where we know lots of people sure, that do it. Yeah. And, you know, and some people have um, a moral code that says that, that killing animals like that is, is wrong. Um, and, and some people don't. Um, but some people, it, it would just be practical, right? When faced with the notion of having to end something's life and process it versus just buying it in a store... I don't think that they'd be able to to stomach it, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, these these sorts of again down on the ground kind of issues, right? And and it's a thought experiment, right? It's a thought experiment. What would somebody do if they had to take care of all their own garbage, or what would they do if they had to take care of all their own food? But although it's a thought experiment, it is also 
practically happening, right? This garbage is being made. This food is being consumed. It's just taken out of the individual context. And the thought experiment can ignite uh, a, a change, however slight, however inconsistent, in one's own behavior one thinks about and these are not these are not heroic things we're not heroifying this we're talking about practical practicalities so here's here's a a really seemingly silly thing that has taken me time to train myself to do and it's also going to sound privileged because I suppose it is so I, I i often go to a coffee shop in the morning and grab a coffee on my way to do my duties and and sometimes I pick them up for my son and daughter-in-law. And how long did it take me to think I should just keep that that uh, cup holder that they offer for multiple cups? It's made of, of recyclable material anyway, but I should just keep one in my car and then take it in with me. I'm a reasonably intelligent person. It just taken me a long time to, uh, to oh, <laughs> oh, I could do this, right? And and I did. And the coffee shop owner this week, when I did, he said, thank you. And I said, why? And he said, because that's one less that I have to acquire. <laughs> yeah, and think about, think about the chain reaction to that, right? If you had an empty room and every time you went to buy a coffee, you threw one of those rings in there, right? And you think about how many would add up and how much how much paper would use and how much it would it would cost the shop owner, right? Well, now you're economical and your your energy efficient and, and climate goals line up. And there's a lot of scenarios where th- those things could line up. People just don't take the time to experiment them. You and I, you we've sort of been on a journey with it together where um, it seems like every every once in a while you come over and and you and my wife Amanda are, are talking about. Oh well, I found this place to source sustainable uh, tissues, or yes, I found this yeah. place that has compostable garbage She's bags. Been wonderful these about that. And these things are these things are not radically more expensive than your normal things. The quality is not radically different. It's a very small, almost imperceptible change that has the ability to have profound impacts if it's adopted at a, at a large enough scale. Yeah. And that, those are the kind of ethical questions we have to ask ourselves is, are we, are we willing to make small, imperceptible changes? Are we willing to put up with a small amount of inconvenience or, or a small amount of reduced consumerism or a small amount of personal responsibility in order to avert a larger um, catastrophe that up until recently has been very abstract, very conceptually hard to quantify, but recently has become a regular staple of our news system, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And how it's affecting us. And, you know, is... Is that right, you know? Well, they're okay. Do we have the right to tell people that they need to make these changes? Or... Should it be left up to them to decide how to live their lives? Yeah, do we do we have the responsibility to say here are some different things you could do, or do we have the responsibility of saying this is what we're going to do? Hmm. And that is a calculus that also depends is that is time dependent, and I think that's what takes us back to so from something as small as you know coffee things and, and napkins to. Seemingly, and it's not small in the aggregate, but back to something like, well, we know the speed of variants of, of, of a viral pandemic. We know what those variants do in numerical terms. Uh, and yet we still, after two years, have a significant part of the population that still resists. And, okay, uh, resistance is not futile, as the board, <laughs> as Star Trek used to experiment with, uh, with that with storyline with the Borg, but, uh, but resisting that which can do great 
damage, if it is resisted, is an is odd thing. And that's very personal. Yeah. Am I required to think about anybody else in my life at all? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think this has been a great conversation. I think that we um, explored the concept well. I think we asked a lot of intriguing questions. And um, I think that we raised a lot of issues that give the listeners something to think about. And um, again, we can't tell anybody what they should believe for the very reason that we talked about early in the episode, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. There is no, we can't define that there is or isn't some ethical ideal out there. So as, as a result, we as humans are left to, to scramble and try to develop our own systems. And, um, the implications of how we develop them well, and what we, we end up believing what we is can fascinating. Do, it is fascinating. And what, and what we can do, and I think what we do do, and this is what I, part of what I so much enjoy about it, is to say, but will you please give it a thought? Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's all we're trying to do here is just get you to think about the stuff. Because if you think about them, you come to, um, you'll come to much more uh, well-rationed decisions and you might even change your mind about some things. Mm -hmm. So until next time, keep pondering.